Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Ambassador Jeffrey Bader. From his first tour in gray drab Beijing in 1981 to arriving with President Obama on Air Force One three decades later as a special assistant to the president, Jeff Bader has been involved in nearly every major event in U.S.-China diplomatic relations. Bader is that rare career official able to operate in both the minutia of a state visit and the broader strategy needed to address enduring U.S. security concerns. He is also an official who jumped the unspoken barrier between career employees and political appointees, experienced at briefing cabinet secretaries and presidents on a course of action on how to deal with China. Given Bader's long involvement in making and executing U.S. policy towards and with China, we've broken up our discussion into two episodes to capture the richness of his experience. In this first conversation, Bader begins with the earlier part of his career at the State Department, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and the National Security Council. He talks with me about the pivot points in U.S.-China relations from the 1980s and the 1990s. Towards the end of that period, Bader was deeply involved with President Clinton's groundbreaking 10-day visit to China in 1998. Here's a clip of President Clinton at a remarkable call-in radio show in Shanghai during that visit. What we're trying to do in America is to say, okay, China should be in the World Trade Organization but it has to be a commercially realistic set of uh, understandings when you have membership, and yet we owe you the right to a reasonable period of transition as you change uh, your economy. And I think we'll get there. I think we'll reach an agreement before long. But in addition to explaining the importance of symmetry and communiques, Bader talks with me about using different levers of the U.S. government to address some of the most meddlesome issues in the U.S.-China relationship, human rights, Tibet, security, technology. That is, he talks through both the why and the how of U.S. diplomacy during the first two decades of his U.S. government career. And now, Ambassador Jeffrey Bader. I wanted to start uh, early on in your career. Uh, we'll get to your time as the staff assistant to, to the East Asia Pacific Affairs Assistant Secretary. But I just want to start your first posting after joining the Foreign Service in Beijing and what it was like to roll off the plane and go to the Beijing's old capital airport and get into the embassy, the old embassy. What was it like to kind of be in China in the, in the 1980s? In 1981, when I first arrived there, it was a pretty backward place. It was gray. It was basically a Stalinist city, um, about four million bikes and four million cyclists all wearing the same blue outfits. Uh, no restaurants in the entire city, no private restaurants. The only places you could eat were in the old hotels, which had uh, dining rooms staffed by sullen, sullen waiters. <clears throat> um, no commercial areas, uh, no street life. Um, people who transparently were not happy uh, and who had uh, no interest in interacting uh, with foreigners because uh, it could get them in trouble. 
so it was, I was there from 1981 to 1983, and it was a pretty gray uh, existence. Um, People in the embassy were all stuck in their compounds uh, and mostly interacted with each other. Your interaction with the Chinese was very structured and, uh, uh, and stilted. And, and what was your job at the time at the embassy? I was in the political section covering internal affairs. And since you couldn't talk to an awful lot of people, that meant mainly reading uh, the media, which you could have done perfectly well back in uh, Washington or in uh, Rosslyn, Virginia. And what was China at that time was just coming out of the Cultural Revolution and Deng Xiaoping was launching reforms. Did you get a sense of excitement? It sounds like it was kind of gray and drab and the the, the excitement didn't come until kind of the mid 80s or the late 80s. I think that's exactly right. I think that the, I I went back in 1987 when I was at the China desk. Uh, The place was completely transformed between 1983 and 1987. Uh, Beijing was beginning to be a vibrant uh, city uh, with a commercial life and a street life and people who interacted uh, interacted with foreigners. So I think the mid-80s is when the Deng Xiaoping reforms really began affecting the physical landscape and the psychology uh, of Chinese. I mean, my, my tour was not completely gray. You know, I'd hop on a train and I'd go off to the provinces, go, went off to Inner Mongolia and Gansu and Xinjiang and in uh, Yunnan and southern China, Shanghai, uh, and pretty much every place was somewhat more lively than the capital. Um, Shanghai was still old Shanghai, and it was always a more commercial place than Beijing. So you got a, a little glimpse of what China had been and what China could be when you got outside the capital. The capital was quite impressive. And at that time, who was ambassador then? Uh, the ambassador was Art Hummel. He arrived some months after I got there. Chas Freeman was the charge of affairs until, uh, until Art Hummel arrived. I can't remember if it was late 81 or early 82, probably late 81. And so you had mentioned difficulty talking to average Chinese people. Did you have much interaction with the foreign ministry? Well, since I was handling internal political affairs, not that much. We had people who handled external, a couple of people uh, who would interact with the foreign ministry, but again, it was pretty perfunctory. They'd go in at a, you know, a, a low level in the foreign ministry and they'd deliver uh, an instructed démarche from Washington and read talking points, and the foreign ministry people would read talking points back, and that was that. There was no, no serious interaction <laughs> at that level. Uh, at the senior levels, I'd say at the Charge level, the political council level, there was somewhat more, somewhat more candid interaction with Chinese counterparts, although it was still very constrained. And so then you came back to Washington and had a series of jobs. Um, I wanted to move into asking you about your role as deputy director, I think, of the China desk during the Tiananmen crackdown. Um, I was rereading Patrick Tyler's book, uh, in which you were uh, involved in preparing the USI to kind of figure out what was happening. Could you just talk a little bit about the run-up to it um, and what what was going on in 1989 and what you at the China Desk were doing during that time? 
Well, it all began, you know, recall, was it April 15th of 1989 when uh, Hu Yaobang died. Uh, and uh, demonstrators began to appear uh, in Tiananmen to celebrate his life. Uh, and uh, it was a very volatile time in Beijing. Uh, you had the meeting of the Asia Development Bank coming up, which was a big deal in Beijing at the time. You had Mikhail Gorbachev's planned visit in early to mid-May, mid-May, uh, which was the first time a Soviet leader had been to Beijing since, what, Kosygin met Zhou Enlai at the airport, like, you know, 25 years earlier. Um, <clears throat> and there had been you know, major, major demonstrations in major in big Chinese cities just two years earlier that led to Yabong's ouster. So the place was, uh, I won't say a tinderbox, but it was uh, fragile, let's say. We just had President George Bush's visit early in the year, February, right after he took office, which <clears throat> ended badly uh, because of... Uh, an episode involving the banquet that the Americans hosted for the Chinese in which the U.S. invited uh, leading dissidents, in particular Fang Lijer, uh, and the Chinese blocked their presence. Uh, it blew up in the media. The trip was generally considered a failure. So there was a, and dissidents were more visible, more active then certainly than they are now. So the place was, was ripe for, for problems. And the, the demonstrations built up over the course of uh, April and May. Uh, from our position at the China desk, all we could do was watch and analyze. You know, we had the Intelligence and Research Bureau at the State Department, which also was you know, working in parallel with us in analyzing what was going on. Um, and there were, there were no, I don't think there were significant differences in perception of, of what was happening. Um, somewhere around mid-May, I think around the time of the Gorbachev visit, it became clear to people in Washington that there was what the Chinese used to call a two-line struggle going on in Beijing. That was not apparent before that. The leadership had gave the uh, appearance of unity but then that cracked open. And by two-line struggle, you mean there was a split in the leadership that had split different views on what to do That's with right. these demonstrators in That's Tiananmen right. Square and around the country. That's right. And that became apparent, uh, I guess, in particular when uh, I think it was General Secretary Zhao Ziyang spoke to Gorbachev during the visit and in essence said, I'm not in charge here. That guy over there, Deng Xiaoping, is in charge. Uh, a kind of shocking thing for a Chinese leader to say on a camera. Uh, and if you read the newspapers at the time, you would read one set of columns um, sympathetic to the demonstrators and another set of columns talk about the need for order and stability. So you knew that things were not settled. Um, and at that time, the official media was one good way to see what the leadership was thinking. Different leaders had different access to different media outlets. Yeah, that wasn't really settled until about May 18th, May 19th, when martial law was declared. Uh, and, then, and then people had a much sharper understanding of what had been going on, that uh, Zhao Ziyang had largely been fighting a 
kind of a one-man battle within the leadership uh, against Deng, uh, against Li Peng, the premier, uh, against Yang Shangkun, who was, I guess, the senior military leader at the time. Uh, and with the declaration of martial law, Zhao was ousted, uh, and, <clears throat> uh, and the military began forays towards downtown to try to restore order, but did them in a somewhat gingerly and half-hearted fashion. So, And what did you see your guys' role at the State Department and kind of the embassy? What, what you were watching, and I know I spoke to Dave Shear, and he was out on the street kind of yeah. talking to people. What, how did you see your role back at, at Maine State? From the Washington end, it was to try to, <clears throat> at that point, to try to maintain uh, the relationship, uh, which was still regarded as uh, critically important for strategic reasons, not least because the Cold War was not entirely over, um, and to urge moderation on the Chinese leadership in response to what was going on. Um, there was not an absolutely clear sense of what the outcome was going to be uh, in much of May. I think there was a general sentiment that I think once martial law was declared, it was pretty obvious what the outcome was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think there was, at the China desk, there was great anxiety uh, in the period from May 20 to May 30 when demonstrators, uh, demonstrations redoubled uh, and they put up this goddess of democracy, not a statue based on the Statue of Liberty, which many of us knew was just going to be an absolute provocation to the leadership and uh, lead to you know, violent repression. Why do uh, you say a provocation to the Chinese leadership? Uh, because it would be seen as uh, foreign interference. This was not, not a statue of Confucius, okay? <clears throat> It was not a Chinese model that was being invoked. It was a foreign model. Um, and given the, the paranoia of the Chinese leadership generally about, about foreign interference, this was a, a real poke in the eye. Uh, and watching the American media and American commentariat get caught up in the, the enthusiasm of what was going on uh, was unsettling uh, because I felt that you know, demonstrators were being baited uh, into taking more and more extreme positions, um, and they were going to have to pay the price for what happened, not journalists in the United States. Um, Do you think your time, just hearkening back to what you said in the early 80s, it was very gray? Do you think your then decade-long time working in China gave you a perspective that journalists who had showed up for the Gorbachev summit kind of didn't have in understanding where China had come from and where it could kind of go back to? <clears throat> Well, I think you remember CNN's coverage, uh, Mike Chinoy with Betty Balord, uh, uh, and uh, I think Mike is a great journalist, and that his coverage set the standard for how CNN covers crises. It was the first time it had been done. But the coverage had kind of a celebratory quality to it, uh, more than it had an analytic quality to it. Uh, and I think others, um, duplicated 
that kind of coverage. Uh, I remember lots of coverage emphasizing the youth and vigor of the demonstrators uh, uh, and old, feeble uh, leaders uh, with the implication that they were one step away from the grave and uh, that you know, they'd be pushed out. Uh, I think that was a complete misreading of the uh, nature and determination of the Communist Party uh, and its leadership to uh, hang on to power. Uh, uh, that uh, and their feeling about uh, stability, the importance of stability. So I felt that <clears throat> you know if this was all occurring in the context of what was going on in Eastern Europe, with uh, you know with revolutionary movements in Eastern Europe uh, developing, uh, and people were p depicting this as struggle of freedom versus uh, oppression with an inevitable outcome. Well, the inevitable outcome was not the way people were depicting it because people did not understand <clears throat> the strength of the Communist Party uh, uh, and the absence of any serious organized opposition uh, or institutional framework for an opposition in China, unlike, let's say, Poland with solidarity. So uh, I think many of us watched it with mounting unease and alarm. Um, when the PLA moved with the violence that it did on June 3rd, June 4th, um, I won't say it was a shock, but it was somewhat surprising in the sense that you'll recall, of course, that 1986-87, Deng had handled the demonstrations, which were massive, um, much more carefully. Um, and the demonstrations had basically dissipated without the need for violent repression. So there was that precedent only you know, two and a half years earlier, which one hoped might stand, but the, <clears throat> uh, for various reasons it did not. Could I ask, you uh, had a very nice introduction to Doug Paul. This is a couple of years ago at Brookings in which he spoke, in which he talked about your daily interactions with him. Yeah. And he was the senior director at the White House at the time, and you had a president who had this unusual history with China. Yeah. Um, could you just talk a little bit about what the kind of requests were and the interaction between the White House and, and state at that at that time? Well, it was very well coordinated. I mean, I used to talk to Doug Paul every day. He was senior director of the National Security Council. Uh, and the nice thing about Doug's position there was that he had a national security advisor in Brent Scowcroft uh, who was intensely focused on China, uh, and Doug could get to Brent Scowcroft in a few minutes' notice to <clears throat> get his attention. So you could get regular guidance and regular feedback uh, from the highest levels of the U.S. government. You weren't just swimming around in, in the dark, which is not often the case at the State Department. Not often at the State Department, you don't know what's going on. Uh, above you, and you don't really, because the bureaucracy on the state side is complex, but if you've got that direct channel to the National Security Advisor, it makes a big difference. Um, both President Bush and Scowcroft were determined not to let the relationship collapse. You know, they understood that after Tiananmen that uh, the U.S. had to react uh, uh, and I remember there was a meeting at the State Department, I think it was June 4th, 
uh, we met and can't remember who chaired it. it may have been Dick Solomon chairing it. I don't recall. It was a big meeting of all the agencies, of all the bureaus at the State Department, talking about the reaction, how we should react. And there was a pretty rapid consensus that we needed to uh, suspend all exchanges, senior level exchanges, with the Chinese, uh, and that we had to suspend all uh, government-funded assistance uh, to China. Not, not that there was exactly a big aid program, but there was a foreign military sales program with four projects going on with the Chinese. And there were other dribs and drabs of, uh, from different agencies funding good government programs and, and uh, uh, business programs and the like. Those two were agreed upon pretty quickly. Um, then there was a discussion about most favored nation status, which you'll recall was on a year-to-year -year basis then. It required an annual waiver to continue most favored nation status for China until the Jackson-Vanik Amendment of the, of the Trade Act. Um, discussion was very brief. There was a consensus almost instantly that MFN had to be uh, continued. I don't remember a dissenting voice on that. Um, Why? What was the thinking? Uh, the thinking was that we could not cut off <clears throat> uh, the major, all the major ties of engagement and interaction uh, with China. China was still only a few years into its opening uh, and reform. Uh, the chances of China going back to an earlier era of autarky, uh, xenophobia, and uh, totalitarianism was not dismissed as trivial. Uh, and in addition, there were obvious U.S. national interests in uh, growing uh, trade with China. There were American stakeholders who had interests. Uh, and I think there was a, uh, an immediate understanding that uh, if we did it, um, that others would not follow. So we would just be cutting off our noses to spite our face. Uh, in fact, the decision on no, uh, no further high-level exchanges and cutting off foreign assistance that was followed almost immediately by the Europeans and the Japanese and Australians and Canadians. That was, that was a well-founded decision. Uh, and then it got multilateral support. MFM suspension would not have. Uh, I, was, uh, I was acting director of the China Desk at the time, and I was assigned the task of writing a memo to the president uh, saying, here's what we recommend, going through the nine or 10 different programs to be continued or suspended, um, and I wrote it in an hour or two based on the meeting, sent it, over, sent it over to the White House via the seventh floor of the State Department. I thought you were going to say horse and carriage in that day. It was before email, but no. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, uh, the president agreed to all of the recommendations within the day. Uh, so that basically set our course for the next few years. Can I ask one question, a kind of broader one, on weighing kind of public versus private messaging? Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned <clears throat> the National Security Advisor 
General Scowcroft, who went to Beijing shortly mm -hmm. after this right. and then made a second trip later in the year. Right. Uh, how did you all kind of weigh what should be done public and private in this instance, but then maybe even just a little more broadly on kind of interacting with Chinese officials? How do you decide this is an issue that really we should handle behind closed doors and this is something that we want to have the spokesman say or the president or, or some other official kind of Well, say. I mean, the, the general precept was it's an internal affair of China. Uh, not so much that we respected the way they'd handle it, not in the least, but there's not much, if anything, an outsider can do about it. You know, we could, you know, beat our chests all we wanted uh, about what they should do, but it wasn't going to make a damn bit of impact on their behavior. Okay, and that hasn't changed. It's probably gotten, let's say, even more so as our leverage with China has diminished down through the years. So, you know, lecturing the Chinese uh, or conditioning their internal behavior uh, on our governance preferences was understood to make very little sense. Um, second was a recognition that something dreadful had occurred uh, in China, that the positive uh, hopes uh, about the political evolution we had seen in China in the middle to late 80s was now uh, terminated or suspended. And that, if I may say, was not at all naive. The leaders of China at the time were Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yabang, hmm? uh, both of whom were committed not only to economic reform, but to uh, political reform broadly defined, uh, meaning changes in China's governance, uh, which would have made for a better China. Uh, there are specific instances of the programs of each. Uh, which people would recognize as liberalizing. In the case of Zhao Ziyang, for example, the separation of party and state, which is something that regrettably has recently been reversed uh, in a more ideological time. Zhao was moving things in the opposite direction. In the case of Hu Yabang, a famous trip to Tibet, uh, in which he basically scolded the hierarchy for its campaign of sinicization of Tibet uh, uh, and called for more Tibetan leaders, uh, Tibetan ethnic Tibetans to run Tibet, uh, and a general disposition towards a more liberal political system. So this was not, not a vain hope at the time. This was reality, okay? And then 1989 meant that that reality no longer held because Deng had decisively turned against the direction that Hu and Zhao were taking, taking China. Um, so that obviously caused reflection. Um, but I think there was still a general recognition that what we cared about above all was China's international behavior. Uh, the issue that had preoccupied me in my three years at the China desk from 1987 to 1990 Number one issue was proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. 
Because China, from an earlier era, from the Mao era, had been hostile to the doctrine of non-proliferation. China's view had been kind of the more nuclear weapons and the more uh, weapons of mass destruction delivery systems out there, the better. Uh, China had given Pakistan the blueprints for uh, making nuclear weapons. Um, China was in touch with every rogue regime in the Middle East, um, providing at a minimum uh, technologies and entire systems for medium-range ballistic missiles. This was our, our number one issue uh, at the time in trying to alter Chinese behavior on proliferation, which was a global threat. And a threat to the United States. A threat to the United States, threat to our allies, um, threat to a, a global system since President Kennedy, which was premised on the notion that you wanted to limit the uh, availability to all regimes, in particular bad regimes, of these kinds of weapons. And this was an incremental process with the Chinese where you had to educate them. You had to give them incentives and disincentives and you had, you had to kind of grab them by the neck uh, uh, and change their whole way of approaching the issue. Um, and, and we put tremendous effort into it. Every high-level visitor who went to China uh, uh, in the late Reagan years and the early Bush years, this was top of the, top of the agenda. Their potential arms sales or actual sales to Iran, to Iraq, to Libya, to Pakistan. Uh, and I will say, that we were highly successful. Um, China, China's behavior changed incrementally, uh, but they basically they stopped delivering entire systems moderately quickly, just a couple of years. Uh, and then the fight over the succeeding years was by and large over technology, whether this item or that item was primarily uh, risky in this or that missile system or was designed for other purposes. And we fought those kind of by trench warfare subsequently. But that was the number one issue. Um, can I move forward to the Taiwan Strait Crisis, 95, 96? But before getting to uh, that time, I, I just wanted you to set the table with the 1982 communique. Uh, I, I was very impressed one of the times that I was working with you, I think it was at the NSC. And some Taiwan issue came up and you had kept the Joint Communiques and the Taiwan's Relations Act in a drawer in your desk that you could refer to it at will as a almost uh, a religious scholarly way to say, okay, what does it actually say in that? But could you just set the table on, on the 1982 communique and, and, and for what you recall from that that one, and then uh, we can talk about the, the Taiwan Strait crisis and what precipitated it and what the U.S. Well, the 82 communique was a consequence of uh, the failure of normalization to settle the arms sale question. Okay, uh, when the U.S. normalized with China in 1978-79, um, the last act of uh, Ambassador Woodcock uh, in cementing the deal in December of 78 was to go in on instructions uh, to see Deng Xiaoping uh, and the acting foreign minister uh, and tell them we intended to continue selling arms to China, uh, to uh, Taiwan. And uh, 
Deng Xiaoping's response was this is unacceptable, completely unacceptable. But this is one thing you could do with the Chinese. They could say something was completely unacceptable, and then the next sentence is, we will go ahead with normalization. Okay, So the decision was made to proceed with normalization, although the Chinese made clear this was completely unacceptable. So what happened after normalization was the Chinese immediately reminded the Carter administration this was unacceptable um, and started demanding that this issue be reopened. And... Um, and the U.S. position at that time, just to be clear, was we, we had long-standing ties to yeah, the people we were going to continue to sell arms to Taiwan. And we still had an arm. We still had a defense treaty with Taiwan for another year at least. So certainly we were going to sell them for another year. Um, and you know, you're going step by step. We weren't making statements as a government beyond the future. The first year sales were actually quite high. They were extraordinarily high. Um, <clears throat> And then when President Reagan came in in 1981, uh, he was at the outset determined to sell advanced fighter aircraft to uh, Taiwan, and he was a very vocal critic of the decision to normalize the PRC and break relations with Taiwan. The Chinese reacted very harshly to that uh, and made threats to downgrade relations with the US. Exactly what those threats mean uh, expel the ambassador, wasn't clear, something like that. So a negotiation ensued in 81-82, resulting in the 82 communique, which had, um, I would call, ambiguous language about the future of arms sales. Um, since I no longer keep it in my desk drawer, I can't recite it um, <clears throat> literally, but the gist of it was that we would um, in the future uh, not increase uh, in quantity or quality uh, the arms sold to uh, Taiwan uh, above the several years surrounding normalization period uh, and that over time um, the uh, arms sale issue would be resolved uh, and there was uh, so an assumption builds into language that over a long period of time, arm sales would fade away. But it wasn't spelled out uh, with contract-like precision. Um, and what the Chinese did in the, the communique was to talk about, you know, neither country will seek hegemony or words to that effect. I didn't think very much of the communique, candidly. Uh, I'm not a great admirer of the 1982 communique. Uh, I think it just set us up for further disputes with the Chinese over what was acceptable and what was unacceptable in arms sales to Taiwan. Uh, at the time, I understand uh, China was regarded as a critical Cold War partner, uh, and that's how Secretary Haig certainly viewed uh, China and how he persuaded President Reagan to pursue this, uh, this agreement. So 1995, um, mm. the Taiwan president comes to the United States, uh, Li Donghui, to his alma mater and um, gives a speech. I think it's fair to say the communists in, in Beijing were not particularly happy about that. Uh, at that time, you were at Maine State. I was in Hong Kong uh, as Deputy Consul General. I got back in the summer of 1995 after the uh, Li Donghui visit. 
and so then the fallout from <laughs> <Lee Dunway>. yes <laughs> indeed welcome welcome back to washington yeah. um what was what did you see your role as in in trying to deal with this fallout from the Lee Dunhui visit? I think there was a broad recognition throughout the administration that the Lee Dunhui visit had been a mistake. Broad, okay? Uh, up to the level of the Secretary of State who offered uh, a statement of regret to his Chinese counterpart, Chen Chi-Chun. Um, the leadership in the State Department had been passive in the process of uh, approving Lee's visit. It was imposed by Bill Clinton, President Clinton, uh, maybe with a few brief consultations with a few key senators who urged him to do it. Uh, and uh, Lee was given a visa without regard to the advice of key people in the State Department, of whom I'd mentioned particularly, Alan Romberg, Don Kaiser, and uh, Kent Wiedemann, who were sort of one step down below the Assistant Secretary level, all of whom were strongly opposed to the visit and who wrote memos to the Secretary of State uh, opposing it. And they were opposed because they thought it was an unnecessarily gratuitous provocation to Beijing and didn't help our strategic relationship with Taiwan? What was the yeah, There's the an element of theology involved here. There had not been a visit by a senior Taiwan leader since the end of the uh, diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. Uh, and as we've just discussed, the Chinese are very focused on precedent. Um, suddenly, for the first time in 16 years, you have the president of Taiwan appearing uh, uh, in the United States, that you know, a president of Taiwan who had been a lifelong advocate of independence for Taiwan, um, this is a challenge from the PRC's point of view. You know, and I don't think anyone doubted that the Chinese would be negative. The question was how sharp would be the reaction. Uh, and the people who I just mentioned said it's going to be very sharp, whereas the senior people who approved it said, ah, we can handle this. Okay. Turns out the people who were familiar with China who were sending up the warning flares were right. And you'll remember what the Chinese did. In fact, they began testing some missiles uh, off the coast of Taiwan. They had a series of missile exercises in 1995-96 that were very threatening. Um, and the whole relationship between the U.S. and China seemed to be on the line. You know, basically... The challenge for the State Department was to provide the Chinese some comfort that this was not going to be a recurring phenomenon, but at the same time not provide an assurance that the U.S. would never do anything of this kind again, because essentially it was a sovereign uh, right the U.S. to receive visitors and to issue visas. It was something we could not delegate to the Chinese. So to find a process and language that would basically tell the Chinese, relax, this is not a precedent. You're not, you are not likely to see more of this kind of thing 
uh, but not provide assurances. I want to ask, who was the ambassador at the time, and was that someone who you used to convey messages? You had said that kind of we these messages had been conveyed to the PRC. What was the mechanism that that was done? Uh, mostly via uh, visitors, visitors to Beijing, visitors to Washington. The <clears throat> we had no ambassador at the time. The Chinese had <clears throat> uh, Ambassador Roy, State Roy, had left. Uh, and the Chinese refused to give Agrimal, or they delayed giving Agrimal to a successor who was Jim Sasser, former senator from Tennessee. So Sasser was just sitting around Washington waiting, and the Chinese weren't giving a go-ahead uh, because of their anger over the Lidunghoi visit. Um, there was a major visit by Undersecretary of State Peter Tarnoff to Beijing in February of 1996 when we had clear indications of what China intended in terms of missile exercises. Uh, and um, that, during that visit, he conveyed uh, clear warnings that um, military action against Taiwan would trigger uh, the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, uh, that there would be a U.S. response. Um, we felt, I, I felt that over the preceding months, that had not been conveyed clearly enough. Um, Tornoff did that. That there would be consequences that the U.S. would have that there would be respond. military consequences of Chinese military action against Taiwan. I, you know, the, the language, as I say, was couched in the Taiwan Relations Act, which doesn't explicitly say the U.S. is going to send forces, but <clears throat> it's implicit. Um, and there was a visit by Liu Huaqiu, who was a the director of the PRC Foreign Affairs Office for the party and vice minister to Washington, which came in the middle of the PRC exercises. And he met, there was a dinner with Secretary Christopher, Secretary of State Christopher, Secretary of Defense Perry, and others, where particularly Secretary Perry was extremely direct in saying what the consequences would be uh, uh, if this kind of activity escalated. Uh, and it was in the wake of that visit that the um, deployment of the carriers occurred. So it was all orchestrated. And we also canceled the visit by the Chinese defense minister. He was supposed to come two or three days later. We canceled that visit. So the, the signaling was both overt and private, and it was done without ambassador, an ambassador. Can we move to your <clears throat> time uh, at the White House um, and the visits of um, John Zeman to the United States and then President Clinton. Uh, I, I had the chance to work with you then, and I had this, I, I remember this vividly. Um, it must have been before President Clinton went in 98. You sent me over, it was like my third day working with you, and I was still trying to find out kind of how to get to the West Wing. It's like, go, go, you said, go to the West Wing. Jim Steinberg, who was the mm -hmm. Deputy National Security Advisor, is having this meeting to prepare for President Clinton's trip. And I, said, oh, I can't sure. believe I did this to you. Go ahead. <laughs> I said, oh, sure. Uh, of course, yes. Uh, so I couldn't find out how to get there. And so I don't think I had a hard pass at the time. I don't remember how I, I'm sure I got in. Yeah. So someone got me at the door and brought me to the meeting. And it was mostly uh, a discussion of what, what, what should happen. But what stuck in my mind was how much focus there was on the media aspect of it, mm -hmm. of kind of yeah. what, what would be presented. Yep. And that was the first visit of a U.S. Yep. president since the Tiananmen Square crackdown, and there was a reviewing of the troops in Tiananmen Square, and so these were these were 
visual issues that were important and kind of messaging yep. issues that were important. Right. Could you talk a little bit about what, how you saw, you were then at that point at the, at the White House as the, as the China director, how you saw John Simmons visit and why presidential visits are even important and in these sorts of interactions? Well, presidential visits send a public message to the publics on both sides that the relationship has mutual benefits and some normalcy to it, uh, particularly in the wake of Tiananmen. There had been a visit in eight years when John came in 1997. So that was an important message that people understood that the U.S.-China relationship was resuming. Um, there's also, you know, visits at that level were also opportunities to close on big issues uh, that the bureaucracies were not able to resolve that had to be kicked up to the presidential level. So I think those are two uh, equally important purposes, and that's how the Jiang Zemin visit was conceived and the Clinton visit even more so when Clinton went a year later to Beijing and was in China for 10 days. Uh, uh, five cities. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, to someone who's been buried in the bowels of the bureaucracy, suddenly to hear about all of this focus on public messaging, it's a bit of a shock. Um, it's like, I don't know, like bats in the cave and suddenly they're out in the light, you know. <clears throat> but that's one thing you do learn at the White House that you may not necessarily learn in the other agencies. Well, the, other, the other question I wanted to ask you was about on the media side. Um, there have been a fair amount of press about uh, space launches of U.S. Uh, uh, satellites on Chinese rockets and yeah. uh, press about that yeah. in, in, in a somewhat partisan way. Yeah, I um, remember well. How did you kind of conceive of that and how did you deal with that? I mean, you were focusing on the kind of relations with China and yet the public relations aspect of it was a critical component of it. Well, that particular issue had to do with a couple of American companies with Loral, which I think was building the rocket, which was they were they a satellite builder. Ford was building Ford was building satellites. A few companies were building satellites, Motorola. Um, I mean, from my perspective at the China desk, it was a commercial issue. Uh, and I looked to our experts in uh, uh, in the Defense Department and CIA and in Political Military Bureau to provide assurances about technology transfer, that there were no unmanageable risks in terms of technology transfer <clears throat> in mating a U.S. satellite to a Chinese rocket because that was the only option that U.S. satellite makers had at the time. The U.S. was not launching rockets uh, that commercial satellite makers could use. So basically, we were giving a death sentence to the American uh, satellite manufacturers if we did not give them a foreign option, and the Chinese seemed to be the best foreign option. Uh, but obviously, we did not want to risk serious technology transfer, and the assurances seemed adequate. I mean, this was not... Uh, an area where I had expertise. I count on the expertise of others. So, you know, there were a few episodes you remember, during that period where, in particular, in one case where a corporate official, perhaps was from L'Oreal, like, uh, after a satellite blew up, uh, provided 
information to the Chinese about the coupling uh, uh, data, technology, and mechanisms between the satellite and the rocket that he was not authorized to give uh, and it would have required an export license that would not have been granted. Um, and that caused the whole issue to kind of blow up. And then uh, a journalist seized on the issue, made it into his bid for the Pulitzer Prize, which I think he got. Um, uh, and it morphed, interestingly, immediately into the one holy uh, nuclear uh, weapons caper uh, in which an American scientist of Chinese background, Wen Ho Li, uh, was accused of providing designs of U.S. nuclear weapons, miniaturization, as I recall, on, uh, to the Chinese. And he was imprisoned and spent months in chains in unfavorable circumstances before the judge threw it out. Uh, that was all part of the, I think, the irresponsible journalism of the time. Um, a journalist or two at the New York Times seeking fame and, if not fortune, fame. Uh, and they got their fame and they got one holy improperly imprisoned for a year and uh, they blew up our satellite program. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the relationship we used to say, I think the term that Madeleine Albright used was multifaceted. There were a lot of things going on in the relationship. As I say, there was nuclear nonproliferation issue. Uh, there was satellite launch issue, which was very important to these American companies. Um, there was the economic relationship, which was beginning to develop. There were human rights issues, which the Clinton administration had put a, a high on the agenda in its first few years. Um, uh, there were arms control issues, trying to get the Chinese to stop nuclear testing, to sign on to at least suspend uh, suspend nuclear testing, if not sign and approve the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Um, there were Chinese arms sales to Iran uh, uh, and Chinese nuclear cooperation with Iran. It was just a vast array of issues. Uh, and I think there was a common assumption in the U.S. government that you had to kind of deal with the relationship holistically. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't afford the luxury of just sort of marching off and treating the Chinese with uh, across-the-board hostility and expect their behavior to change in any of these areas. You had to kind of prioritize uh, issues uh, and work with the Chinese on changing, um, in some cases, longstanding behavior. And I would argue that a lot of the longstanding behavior in the 1990s did change. They signed the CTBT. They stopped their nuclear testing. As I said, they changed their WMD, weapons of mass destruction, proliferation. Um, the record on the economic side is much too complex to get into here, but there were a lot of negotiations over specific issues that made some incremental gains. Uh, and Taiwan got stabilized. Uh, after the fireworks in 1996. Uh, so um, I think the, the relationship in the 1990s, the leadership on the U.S. side uh, achieved some, some real objectives. You had mentioned President Clinton's trip and 
10 days and the first stop was Xi'an, I think, yep. if memory serves. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk through what you, why so long for a president to be there, what you uh, were trying to accomplish and what you saw as your goals in, in making it such an extended trip? Well, that was a decision made at the top, so I, I won't take credit for 10 days or blame as it may be. Uh, it gets back to the point you were making earlier about the public messaging. I think there was a, a view in the White House that the only image people had of China at the time was a man in front of a tank, was the, you know, the, the Tiananmen uh, repression. Uh, uh, and anytime you chose to do anything on China policy, that's what you'd see in B-roll on the, on the media. And there was a feeling the relationship was more complex at this point, and we needed some new images. And President Clinton, who was media savvy, uh, felt that um, getting lots of pictures back to American audiences, um, whether it was the uh, the soldiers at Xi'an or the, the terracotta uh, warrior soldiers, terracotta not, warriors not PLA soldiers. At Xi'an, yeah, all right, they were not PLA; they were pre-PLA, um, <clears throat> or the uh, the mountains of. Uh, of Guilin or, or the dynamism of Shanghai or you know, visits to Forbidden City. Or, uh, getting some of these images would provide a more balanced and realistic view of where China was in 1998 than endless focus on, uh, on Tiananmen, which there was nothing we could do about then and nothing we could do about nine years later. If I recall, one of the stops was in Shanghai in which uh, President Clinton had a call and radio show with the Shanghai mayor. Um, yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about just access to the media for U.S. officials when they're in China? It's oftentimes quite limited or limiting, and the Chinese side will promise that this will be broadcast or not broadcast, or that'll be uncut and then it ends up being cut. Could you just talk about some of that, it, those challenges? It, it, yeah, James, it varies. I mean, I, my stronger, my strongest recollection is rather f actually from the Obama years and President Obama's visit in uh, 2009 <clears throat> and the way in which the Chinese uh, manipulated and blocked our, uh, President Obama's access to the media. Uh, very unfortunate, uh, but very firm on their side. Clearly, they... They don't want <clears throat> unclear and uncontrolled messages going to their people. Uh, in the case of President Obama's visit, sort of endless wrangling over the format of his public remarks. In Shanghai, the, the town hall meeting, endless wrangling. Uh, and then uh, basically blocking the president from meeting with, I would say, some of the more <clears throat> Uh, pluralistic oriented uh, media in China. Uh, insistence to the, uh, insistence that they only meet with, I can't remember, Xinhua or People's Daily. Mm -hmm. um, and a huge battle over streaming of his speech uh, in Shanghai, um, the details of which I can get into if you want. But, it, but the point was they were trying to limit as much as possible. Um, and then finally, the joint press conference where the Chinese refused to allow any questions. 
just statements by the two sides. Okay? I remember when Hu Jintao came back to the U.S. in 2011, I was talking to the Chinese preparing the visit. I said, well, we're going to have a press conference, and we're going to have two questions from each side. And the Chinese said, oh, uh, well, we'd rather not do that. The, the schedules would be very tight. And I said, I don't care what you want. You're in the United States, and those are the rules. He's taking questions. If he doesn't want to answer them, that's up to him. But questions will be asked. And the Chinese couldn't do anything about it because it was our home turf. But on their home turf, they insist on, on total control of the media message. Uh, and, you know, I, as a matter of fact, President Obama's visit, we got creams in the media, in the American media, over elements of that visit. Um, and, you know, my, you know, why do we accept this? Why do we accept that? Well, the answer is, I'm sorry, this is not the United Kingdom, okay? You know, the United Kingdom or Australia, they have similar ground rules to us. Uh, and, you know, we get our message out the way we want. Uh, but China's different. Uh, and, you know, you go there, uh, you fight for every inch, uh, and then you ultimately get what you get. But if you're going to judge by the standards of what would happen in London, well, we're going to come short every time. And I know that's the story you guys like to write uh, because you don't want to write a, you know, a dog bites man story. You want to write a man bites dog story. Um, but, you know, I mean, during President Obama's trip, we did, for example, we did get streaming of the uh, speech. And it was streamed on, I can't remember which Chinese uh, website. It was streamed not 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 the not the video or the audio, but a transcript, a written transcript. Okay, which actually on the first run was not censored. Okay, and we also had it on the White House website in Chinese, just in case it was censored. A little harder for Chinese to get to. Um, and I checked later in the week. You know what with our our press people, how much coverage to get. I was told there was 65 million hits on it, okay? That's more than you get in England, which doesn't even have 65 million people, or has about that many people. Um, so, you know, you do what you can, you try to infiltrate the message as best you can, um, and you accept that it's not gonna be according to the, the rules you like. Ambassador Jeff Bader speaking with me from Los Angeles, California. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.